I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio, saying that you don't need to be a psychic to know that the commercial messages being beamed into your brain by advertising are extremely annoying. That's why the advertising model for internet radio sucks. There's got to be a better way. Well, there is. It's called the subscription model. Please go to truthjihad.com and subscribe by way of the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the radio show that has no respect for the taboos that prevent us from trying to figure out the truth about all sorts of very important issues that aren't being properly covered in the mainstream. I'm Kevin Barrett. We talk about politics a fair bit on this show, social issues a little bit, and occasionally even science. And we are now in a strange phase of cultural development in which we are being browbeaten to trust the science. Well, I trust the scientific process to a certain extent. It's a good method for trying to figure out certain kinds of empirical things. But... There are a lot of problems in the scientific community, and one of them is the reluctance to acknowledge the results of a very rich history of psi experimentation. I discovered this in high school by reading the Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on ESP, and I did some research, and I was shocked that so many people know that things like telepathy and precognition exist, and yet the larger scientific community tends to deny it to a certain extent, even though science itself has proven it seven ways from Sunday. And one of the world's leading experts on all of this is Dean Radan. He's the author of a long list of great books, including uh, Supernature and The uh, Conscious Universe, which is a really good sort of primer on these topics. And he has a new book out called Real Magic, which I haven't read yet, but I'm intending to. He's been doing entangled photon experiments, among other things, and offering great commentary on his Twitter feed and website. So, hey, welcome, Dean Radon. It's great to have you back. Uh, glad to be here, Kevin. And uh, my last name is pronounced Raiden. Raiden. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm I, I'm thinking of Paul Radon, the French anthropologist, and I guess I get you <laughs> the pronunciations confused. Yeah. I spent too much time Spelled in France. the same way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are, are you of French ancestry? Uh, no, I, we're probably a different family tree. I think um, my last name used to be Radinsky, when my grandparents, or, or one set of grandparents, uh, emigrated from Russia way back when. Oh, very interesting. Okay, well, I'll try to keep that uh, pronunciation straight. Uh, so, Dean Radin. And right. here we are uh, in a very strange cultural moment with a pandemic uh, raging around us, or maybe raging a little less than some pandemics in history have. Uh, the cultural issues around it are certainly raging, and uh, the leitmotif, trust the science, is everywhere. Well, Dean, you do science. You're a scientist, and yet you've noticed that the scientific community, when it gets on to sort of a groupthink bubble, mm, is often wrong. So if, maybe we could start by uh, by hearing your thoughts about that. Well, science has an aspiration for the same as we see in the academic world, for academic freedom. That means that you can apply the, the tools and methods of science and scholarship to study anything that you want. 
But as we all know, the aspirations sometimes are not actually realized. And it's just as true in science as it is in any other any other enterprise that involves more than two people, which is basically everything. So science has its own sets of taboos about what you're allowed to talk about. It is definitely influenced by politics, strongly influenced as well by business interests. Uh, and so I think one of the reasons why a lot of people today is in in considering about the pandemic, they're suspicious about science because there's also an assumption that not only are there external influences which determine what, what the mainstream believes, and by the way, there is no one mainstream, there's dozens of them, uh, but also that there's an assumption that when the scientists, especially within medical science, they make a pronouncement that that's the way it is, but that's never the way it is. Experimental science is always provisional. And theories are always provisional. The, the reason why uh, I think it's useful to pay attention to, the, to what science actually says is because it means that that phrase means, is there evidence to support the conclusion? Well, evidence, too, is uncertain. It's only at this stage when something turns into technology that we have extremely high confidence that our theories are correct. But all of the really interesting questions out there are still very much in a theoretical phrase or there's experimental data which is not yet clear. So I understand why as people who are not scientists are reluctant to pay attention to it because after a while they don't know who to pay attention to anymore. So I have, I have great sympathy for that. Yes, I, I do too. And and I share some of the confusion. I, I've been a humanities scholar. I taught humanities for a while at a community college in the Bay yeah. Area and had to uh, deal with the, the kind of conflicts between uh, science and, and the human-centered disciplines. And there's there's no uh, really uh, clear, simple way of interpreting uh, and mediating all these disputes. But you know, you mentioned that when science turns into technology, that's when we get a high confidence uh, in, in that particular area. Mm -hmm. And why hasn't uh, Psy or hasn't Psy uh, turned into technology? You know, one paranoid conspiracy theory, which like many others might be true, is we could imagine that if a particular group ever managed to turn Psy uh, into a reliable technology, they would want to monopolize it. And part of their strategy for monopolizing it might include uh, poo-pooing it and making sure that the serious people in the culture didn't even believe in it so nobody would ever uh, <laughs> replicate their technology. Uh, that's one possibility, of course, and then there are others as well. So why, why has Psy, which is so well proven scientifically, not yet turned into technology that we've heard about? Well, it's as you say, that there are a number of answers to that, and they, they all conspire in such a way to put us in the middle of a paradox. The, the paradox is that when you do surveys of people in terms of their experiences, so we did, an, as an example, we did a survey where we had 25 different kinds of experiences that people report, but we didn't use any of the psychic terms. We didn't use terms like telepathy or precognition. We simply described the way that the experience could happen to somebody. And then we asked the general population and a subset of scientists and engineers 
how many of these 25 different kinds of experiences have you personally had? And so among the general population, 94% of people said they had at least one of the 25 and on average about seven of the 25 different experiences that they personally had. And this is why when you ask people about their beliefs in telepathy or precognition, they're, they're the majority of the population believes because they've had that experience themselves or they know somebody that they trust who reports such experiences. So our surprise was when asking, asking the same question to scientists and engineers, again, 93% and on average actually more than the general population, on average eight of the 25 experiences scientists and engineers have had personally. So this is supported by what we see in the laboratory because oftentimes when we do an experiment on one kind, one or another kind of psychic phenomenon, sometimes we select people based on maybe they're a meditator or maybe they report these experiences, but oftentimes they're unselected. They're basically the person off the street who we recruit to do an experiment and they can show results too. Usually not as good as somebody who's selected, but nevertheless, it seems like this is a natural ability that most people have, whether they realize it or not. So the paradox then is very commonly reported and scientifically confirmed experiences that are not part of the academic dialogue. And so then the question is, well, well, why not? It's certainly part of our entertainment business. It saturates our books. It saturates television and movies. It's as though we're in the emperor's new clothes that everybody can see what's happening, but people aren't willing to talk about it. So, so why is it not in the academic world? Well, the academic world today is uh, the result of the Enlightenment, and part of the Enlightenment was development of the philosophy of materialism. It's simply a way to understand the nature of reality. And from a materialistic perspective, it's very, very difficult to understand how something like uh, telepathy could exist, or how something like precognition could exist. And as a result, you do find leading spokespeople today within the scientific world who echo this idea that as far as they can tell, their understanding of the physical world, even said by physicists who should know better, but they say that the world as we understand it does not allow for these phenomena. Therefore, anyone who reports it is either lying about it or they're mistaking coincidence or they don't understand probabilities or one of another dozen kinds of explanations. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that, that, and then you have to put in religious pressure against looking at these kinds of phenomena and you put in governmental pressure because they don't want secrets to be spilled. Lots and lots of reasons conspire to maintain the taboo in the academic world. You think philosophy has a role to play in changing this situation? I recently read Bernardo Castrop's book, Materialism is Baloney, and it's mm -hmm. a very good, concise refutation of materialism and basically follows the same lines of thought that I've been following for decades, but he says it far better than I ever have. Uh, so do you think that um, a serious consideration of the philosophical issues could uh, could change this kind of strange form of dog dogmatic scientism, uh, materialistic scientism that we're experiencing today? Absolutely it could. And the thing is that when you ask people who are trained as engineers and scientists, how many courses on the philosophy of science or the sociology of science have they had? And the answer typically is none. 
And some scientists even go beyond that and say, we don't need philosophy. Philosophy has been doing this for 3,000 years and hasn't gotten anywhere, so who needs philosophy? Well, that's a problem because as, as all fledgling scientists know when they go through their academic career, they're never told that what they're studying is resting upon large sets of assumptions. And assumptions are, are just that. They're ideas that we accept because they seem to be useful at the time. Uh, so we don't know. We're, as, as a student, you don't know you're being trained in materialism. And even worse is that even our concepts of what we mean by material has radically changed over the past century. So we don't have, at least within your own discipline, a really solid background in the history of the change of assumptions in your own discipline over time, then you're going to completely, you, you won't understand why there would be so much resistance to changing the idea. I mean, after all, materialism is extremely successful. We don't, we're not going to drop it no matter what. What we probably will do, I think, is recognize, as we have done in every other discipline in the academic world, that our set of assumptions today is probably a special case, just like classical physics is a special case of a more comprehensive way of thinking about reality. Well, the same is true about materialism in general. It works really well, but only in certain circumstances. And as we begin to expand our concept of what we're going to study, including things like consciousness and subjectivity, we need to expand our assumptions about how reality works. And you can actually see that today, even in physics, where there's a growing number of physicists working at the edge uh, who are trying to define what do we actually mean by reality. And so the, the old idea that maybe our minds or consciousness are, is wound into physical reality in some way, some inextricable way, that is now no longer a taboo topic to talk about. So that's, that is showing actually there is, a, there is a slow change in terms of redefining what we will accept in terms of our assumptions. It, it does seem that a lot of relatively mainstream people admit that the hard problem of consciousness is real and that any solution to it may require uh, a bit of a paradigm shift. So maybe that's mm -hmm. a sign that we're getting closer. Well, your, your new book, Real Magic, sounds like it does touch on the fact that, or the, the topic of people sort of instrumentalizing these uh, psychic uh, phenomena um, in a way that would be sort of like what would happen if we technologized it and made it mm -hmm. therefore scientifically real. It occurs to me that maybe uh, such developments would have a downside and such as, well, uh, you know, the, the part of the reason that so many people are resistant to this is who wants to think you're living in a world where people can read your mind, you know, especially right. really gifted people. And you're not one of those really gifted people. So there's somebody out there who can read your mind and you can't read his mind. That's bad mm -hmm. news. And push it one step further. And we're in Philip K. Dick's world where I don't know if you've read Philip K. Dick's science fiction novels, but in quite a few of them, we have essentially corporate capitalism has kind of gotten even worse in the future in many ways, uh, exploiting other planets in some cases in, in hideous nightmarish ways, uh, very similar to the way our current culture is exploiting so many things. And in, in these novels, there are often sort of uh, precog bureaus 
where mm-hmm. the wealthy people can hire uh, a precog to tell them which way the future is going to go. And they're using this for the same reasons that corporate executives today might, say, hire a mafia hitman or something. You know, it's purely self-interested, purely in search of money and power. And so allowing these abilities into the culture and getting them instrumentalized and turned into technology or real magic, as your book title suggests, uh, might have that kind of downside. Um, and one wonders whether there could even be benevolent uh, entities or you know, Allah, even uh, in my Muslim paradigm, uh, that would be dictating that the progress towards this is somewhat slow, that you know people's egos kind of have to be set aside. You know, the Sufis say you need the annihilation of the ego to get into the kind of state where you're seeing these other levels of reality. And so maybe there's a built-in uh, limit to it. Uh, what, have you speculated on the various, on the ways that, um, this uh, development towards technologized psychic powers might not be such a good thing, and in the possibilities for uh, even you know relatively benevolent forces as well as mo- malevolent ones to be suppressing them. Well, it's already being used. So, the, if you, I've seen estimates of how much money the quote psychic industry makes, and it's in the billions of dollars a year. And most of those are psychic readers who may or may not have any talent. Some of them do. Uh, but within the corporate world and in government, there are plenty of consultants who do work for people in, who are wealthy and in governments. That's already happening. It's just it's flying below the, the so radar. The genie's out of the bottle. The cat's out of the bag. <laughs> and yeah. Deal with it. <laughs> it's quite clear there are some people who are very talented in the, these kinds of things. And so they're being used. They probably always have been. So what, what you're talking about are other pressures, like why, well, why isn't this common knowledge? Well, it kind of is common knowledge. I mean, it's not, it doesn't take much Googling to find out uh, that this is true. The question is, well, then why is it not, why don't we have departments and universities that are talking about these things? So some of it you already touched upon, where uh, our, our government and business industries and, and law would not work if there were no secrets. And so if this became widely known and the methods for enhancing telepathy, for example, became common through technology or psychedelics or something, that would be a very serious problem because you you can't sustain government or modern civilization in any form if everybody knows what's actually going on. So there you have the status quo, which is saying, oh, no, you don't. We're, we're, we don't talk about these things. It's too dangerous. Uh, and a, a lot of pressure can be brought to bear then to say, no, just anybody who is in a position of authority to talk about what's real, uh, either declare it to, to be demonic and off, uh, you're not allowed to touch it, or uh, the academic equivalent of demonic, which is a taboo, which says this doesn't exist. So m- lots of pressure from many different angles which would make it very difficult to allow this kind of effect to go mainstream, at least in terms of the general population uh, believing that it's being used in some way, even though privately they are using it. So yet more evidence of this strange paradox that we find ourselves in where basically everybody has had these experiences, most people believe in it, being used to the tune of billion dollars a year, and yet officially... And by officially, of course, what we're talking about are 
major scientific journals, uh, science, uh, popular science journals, large newspapers and so on, the, there's a very common spin that is provided in all of those sources, including Wikipedia. So the average person who wants to know, I had a weird experience last night, uh, what does that mean? Well, they, they search all of the usual places. They're going to come back with saying it's just an illusion or it wasn't, it wasn't a real thing after all. Uh, but that's simply wrong. So yeah, it's the status quo doesn't, doesn't like these kinds of ideas and pushes back hard. A case can be made, by the way, that during the Cold War, when the U.S. government had the, the Stargate and other programs going on, which was psychic espionage, it was working really well. And it continued to work really well for two reasons. One, it was top secret, so very few people knew of its existence. But at the same time, if you have a secret weapon, so-called, it is to everyone's benefit for everyone else to either not know that you have a secret weapon or that they are told that the secret weapon actually doesn't work at all. So it's difficult to prove that uh, there were there was pressure or influence from the government to support skeptical societies that made it their business to constantly say that none of this stuff is real. But I would not be surprised if historically we find out at some point that there were links from our own government to to create a public narrative, just as it, does, it did with UFOs, that there's there's nothing to look at here, just keep going about your business. None of this is real because on the inside, they knew that it is real and actually is quite important. So it's like a classic deflection maneuver. And uh, a book that could be seen as a deflection maneuver or as this kind of limited hangout, or even uh, in some ways a revelation is John Ronson's book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. And mm-hmm. that of course, does uh, raise the same kinds of questions I when I brought up Philip K. Dick and so on about pretty malevolent, uh, power-seeking, psychopathic people at high levels of, of our power pyramid uh, get, trying to get their hands on this sort of technology. And, uh, of course, John Ronson sort of uses this as fodder for humor. It's kind of mm-hmm. amusing that a bunch of special forces killers would all like line up and stare at a goat and try to kill the goat with their brainwaves <laughs> or their psychic ability. Uh, yeah. So he milks that for humor. You finish that book though. And in a sense, you know, he's sort of one impression you could get would be he's dismissed the whole topic because we're all laughing at it. It's so ridiculous, but the actual material in the book, especially the stuff at the end about some of the CIA's uh, horrific experiments that have been proven to have actually happened. We realize that he's exploring an area that actually could be quite important. Uh, so uh, I think humor is one uh, element that's been used really to uh, sort of defang the topic, and that could be both positive and negative, I suppose. I, I don't know, did, did, you, did you see the Ronson's book and the movie they made out of it? I did, yes. And in both cases, the book and the movie present a humorous side to all of this because it is kind of silly. On the other hand, both the book and the movie are revolving around issues that actually did happen, and both of them leave the reader or the viewer with the sense that, oh, this isn't just a hallucination. It's not just an illusion. There actually was real stuff happening, as there was. So it's, 
it's interesting then from just from a point of view of a writer, how do you tell a narrative that will be that will capture the audience and maintain their interest? Well, he did a pretty good job in that way. Right. I mean, uh, how many novels, uh, whether they're based on fact or fiction, get turned into movies? Well, not too many. This one had elements in it where you could almost see that he was writing a script, a t- like a movie script. And, and that's indeed what it turned into. So, yeah, it's uh, it's one way to, to spin a tale. Yeah. And, and I, I like Ronson's work. I know some folks in the alternative knowledge community uh, find him to be with the nefarious forces of cover up. But I think if you read him carefully, it's not quite that simple. Most of the time, there are some exceptions where he's uh, uh, been unfair to various people. But uh, yeah, that was, that was a, a powerful book, I think. And it, but I think it is designed, though, so that your sort of average educated reader might not take the subject quite as seriously as they should when they're done, especially if they're a careless reader. Well, well let's get to this new book you have out, Real Magic. Uh, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Um, I'm interested in that connection between ancient wisdom and modern science and, the, and then the ancient forms of knowledge that were, they, they used this kind of stuff in a particular way. Uh, often, I think, cultures have managed to create means of preserving social stability in a world where these psychic powers not only exist, but everybody knows they exist. I did my PhD research in Morocco on Sufi miracles, and I did collect stories uh, of people who had had extraordinary psychic experiences uh, in, in recent times. And uh, I think that in general, essentially the, everybody in Morocco, possibly with a couple, there might be one or two brainwashed university professors somewhere who haven't figured it out yet or who have been uh, reprogrammed, but virtually the entire culture accepts that these abilities are quite real and going on around us all the time. And that culture has built in some safety mechanisms, I think. People who use psychic abilities for selfish ends of any kind are looked down on a little bit. You know, if you have to go to the market to buy some special herbs and some weasel brain, uh, it's actually hyena brain, but my Moroccan wife mistranslated it as weasel brain, uh, which is used by uh, abused wives to totally control their husbands, to essentially turn the husband's brain to mush and take him over uh, as if he were a zombie. You know, people doing that sort of thing are looked down on and considered sort of socially marginalized and so on. Uh, and then, of course, there are people doing really nefarious stuff as well, and they're even more marginalized and looked down upon, whereas the uh, the sheikh, that is the religious scholar, who has this ability to, uh, to of clairvoyance, and the television station reports on this and follows him around asking him questions about what's going on in this place and that place where they have cameras, and he's telling them exactly what's going on there because he can see it uh, clairvoyantly, that this sort of thing is okay if it's if the... Uh, religious ideals and the religious discourse approve of it, then, and, and it's not selfish at all. It's all fisa bililah. It's, it's for the sake of God. Then it's basically fine. It's good. It's benevolent. And the, and the Sufi saints, who are often religious scholars, are honored for this. But the people who instrumentalize it in a selfish way, uh, especially in a very selfish way, are, are marginalized and looked down upon. And I, I'm wondering if you think Western and modern culture has any possibilities of developing some sort of safeguard system 
uh, in the event that this stuff breaks out more than it has? Well, it's it's a very good question. Uh, the same social acceptance you find in uh, South American countries and in India, most basically all throughout Asia as well. And I've talked to scientists and scholars in those countries about these things. And what's interesting is that if there's large social acceptance, then there doesn't seem to be as much need or interest in having scientific verification and understanding. I found this most dramatically in India. Uh, And I'm not entirely sure why that's the case. But in in the, the Western world, U.S. and U.K., Australia, and so on, uh, there the, the need for scientific verification of something that seems spooky seems to be much higher, even though there's so much higher skepticism as well. Although even the skepticism is only in a small minority of people. As I said, over 90% of basically everyone, including scientists and engineers, have had these experiences so there's there's still something there's some natural skepticism I guess that's built into our Western worldview and uh, that that's why we turn to science to say is there any is this real is what what happened in this case uh, but now I've diverged from your question so if you remind me what the question was I, get back <laughs> well, to I, it. I was asking about sort of possible safeguards because. You know, we, we don't really have a religious discourse, uh, that's survived in this culture. Our, our religion is sort of secular progressive materialism, which mm-hmm. basically is that individuals should grab as much power and pleasure as possible in their own way and quote unquote, as long as they're not hurting anybody, they should do any darn thing they want. And yeah. so that, uh, philosophy, you know, may work okay, uh, at the, at a certain level. But if, uh, if like in Morocco, everybody just knew that these psi techniques are available, extremely powerful. There are specialists who are really good at them. If you want to get something done, go to the specialist. Well, you know, today, if the powerful people want to get something done, they go to specialists and, you know, they do very nefarious, selfish things just regularly. And rather than being relegated to the social margins and and considered sort of taboo and like bad people that nobody would want to deal with, these people rule the culture. (laughs) So so how do we get some safeguards so that we don't end up with all the rich psychopaths using this stuff and making the world worse. Well, they probably already are. That's, <laughs> I mean, that, that's one of the, the sad things about all this. That, uh, in, in the classified environment, I asked once uh, if we were very successful and we created some amazing new technology or something, what would happen to it? And the answer w- immediately was it would disappear down a black hole and you'd never be able to talk about it again or even work on it. And you could never even admit that it existed. So I thought, well, that's that's not good. If you look at the the many grimoires that you can buy out there, with books of spells, that's all about uh, gratifying the ego. I mean, half of the spells are about love spells, and the other half are about money spells and power spells. Uh, all of that is about manipulating the world around you. And what is not typically said in the grimoires is that probably 90% of the spells would be considered black magic because if black magic is defined as overcoming the free will of another person, that would be black magic. And do you think then about how most people would want to use these capabilities? It does fall into the category of black magic. You're trying to influence 
others' behaviors, others' beliefs, others' perceptions, all of that, to your benefit, to your soul benefit. Well, fortunately, it's that's not the only way you can use these things. There's also a lot of spells for healing. And presumably, healing, healing is good, except that healing can be reversed as well. And of course, there's one of the fears that comes out where maybe you could harm somebody at a distance. Well, that's probably true. So how do we protect ourselves? Well, you could already go to religious artifact stores and buy all kinds of little statues of saints. A lot of people do that. You can buy amulets. You can buy all kinds of things. Maybe it'll increase the stock in tinfoil. So you can uh, line all of your clothes and hats with tinfoil. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the, the problem is that as far as the, the scientific research goes, we don't know of any way to definitively block any of these capabilities, whether they're perceptual capabilities or psychokinetic. Nothing seems to block it or to stop it. So the usual way that you, if you read books on psychic self-defense, mostly it's about you psychically protect yourself. You surround yourself with white light or with a mirrored shield or things of that sort. Uh, well, some people can do that and other people are not very good at doing those kinds of things, in which case, unfortunately, for many people, they actually will not be able to protect themselves. Well, uh, Muslims uh, believe, and that would include me, actually, to, in my own way, that the final two short surahs of the Quran, the Mu'awidatayn, uh, provide powerful protection against this sort of thing. So anybody <laughs> wants to can check into that. Uh, and, and along these lines, there's a very interesting case of a professor named uh, Culiano, who uh, I think he was Romanian, who wrote a book called Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, which looks into sort of the simultaneous birth of science and a certain kind of magic in Western culture. Uh, mm -hmm. And both the science and the magic may have been very, uh, you know, t tending towards black magic and, and mass psychic manipulation and so on, which eventually created the world that we're in today. And anyway, he was mysteriously murdered in a University of Chicago restroom uh, a couple decades ago, I think, and they never solved it. Um, do you have any comments on that book or case, or have you heard of that? I, I'm not familiar with that case, no. Okay. Um, we'll pass maybe on it's, it's due to suppression in my own case, because... <laughs> Uh, you don't need to be accosted by too many paranoid schizophrenics who think that you're controlling their mind uh, to want to stay out of the public restrooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Culiano was involved in some sort of political stuff as well, so it's still a huge mm -hmm. mystery what happened to him. But he was one of the leading uh, scholars in humanities who was essentially taking for granted that these kinds of uh, psychic abilities exist. I mean, he wasn't putting it in the same sort of scientific language that you do, mm -hmm. but he, he did take it for granted and was exploring uh, a, a certain school of, uh, of of practice of these things that emerged in the Renaissance. And then he had that strange mm -hmm. death. And so a lot of folks were wondering what in the world happened to him and whether that's a, a bad sign for people in the academy who, who study this sort of thing. Um, so uh, well, as, yeah, as we've already discussed, there, it certainly raises uh, concerns in a lot of people's minds about these things. They will begin to identify an individual who simply has an interest in the topic as suddenly being a dark magician or something like that. Yeah. And 
that if you if you look at the number of people who are mentally ill who if in one way or another think that they're also psychic it's a pretty large percentage of schizophrenics for example who think that they're enormously psychic and if they have a paranoid streak they will flip out i mean they'll they'll attack anybody who they think is involved in the what they perceive as being psychic attacks on them i mean it, it's it's re- reasonable from inside their head it's reasonable to try to get somebody to stop uh, and it certainly is not helped by the way that these kinds of phenomena are portrayed in the entertainment if, if you took any random sampling of a hundred movies for example or television shows that have a psychic component almost all of them will devolve into horror films. And then that becomes part of the public way of thinking about these things. They will think of it in dark terms. And and so that's that's unfortunate. I mean, it's we know that those kinds of stories attract attention. Um, I'm writing a TV series with a, a writing partner, which has a very different spin on these kinds of, of effects. Uh, a much more positive way of thinking about these as simply natural human capacities that most of the time we just suppress or we're frightened of, and there's no reason to be frightened of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's, it seems that the same cultural forces that in the past uh, marginalized these things by you know through a religious discourse that claimed that this was all from the realm of the demonic – uh, today they're doing the same thing, just sort of disguising it a little bit. But they're, the Hollywood narrative isn't that different from sort of some of the church narratives from the old days. Um, and it's, yeah, yeah, it's and true. It, and it, it's interesting that you could. I, I can certainly imagine a lot of ways of sort of flipping that narrative. You know, based on my own experience, for example, you know, when I actually had the most intense uh, sort of set of these kinds of experiences. Uh, that I've ever had. I've, you know, I've, I've had occasional precognitive dreams and telepathic experiences like anybody else. You know, you know, the phone rings and you know who calls that, that happens every now mm-hmm. and then. But I, I had uh, a, a real intense, uh, maybe six months of that when I was in high school, uh, after I had visited uh, Stephen Gaskin's farm spinoff uh, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Stephen Gaskin was a, a sort of a hippie spiritual teacher from San Francisco who led a couple hundred followers across the country in old school buses and settled on a farm in Tennessee. And then they had a spinoff in Wisconsin. So when I was 16, I hitchhiked up there and spent a few days with those people. And I think they'd been using psychedelics as well as mystical techniques. And they'd been sort of systematically trying to create a community in which people sort of blow off their egos and experience loving telepathy and loving psychic experiences as just a normal part of life. And that was that group mind was so powerful that it kind of worked on me. So then when I went back home, I could still access that to a certain extent. And it was good. It was, you know, the part of your ego that you're setting aside when you do these things is really kind of a prison. And it's it's a bunch of sort of mechanisms that force you to behave selfishly. And, of course, maybe our ancestors needed mechanisms to force them to behave selfishly to survive. uh, And that's why it's there. But freeing yourself to some extent of those mechanisms, stepping out into a space where you feel love and compassion for everything and resonate telepathically with other people, uh, res- resonate with uh, various kinds of, of uh, perceptions uh, beyond the normal sensory perceptions is actually a very positive 
thing, it, it feels good. And it feels like the sort of things that I've studied when I've studied the saints, the Sufi saints and other saints. So it seems to be a very powerful, positive side to all of this that really gets lost in the popular culture. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how are you planning to, to bring it back? Well, as I said, through, through a narrative, you create different kinds of narratives to show that this actually is interesting from a scientific perspective and probably important if for no other reason than uh, helping to augment the methods that we use in medicine, for example. So we've done studies on energy medicine, uh, which is by no means mainstream, except that slowly insurance companies are beginning to say, well, okay, it looks like therapeutic touch or Reiki actually does have some evidence for it, in which case, if you get a Reiki treatment, maybe your insurance will cover that. So that's a major step in, in the direction of what amounts to a, a new and at the same time very old method of healing. Uh, we still don't really understand what energy medicine is, but it does seem to work. And it's not placebo because you can do control studies too. So at some point when we learn much more about what's going on in those kinds of methods of healing, uh, some of which are psychic because it also works at a distance, well, that has the capacity for great good. And in many ways, everything psychic is just another kind of knowledge power. And power could be used for good or bad. That, that depends more on how we want to use it rather than the power itself. Uh, same could be said for nuclear power or any other kind of power. It can be used for good or bad. It's up to us to decide. My long-term view is that if, if if our species lasts long enough, we'll figure out ways of actually using these kinds of things in the same way we figured out nuclear energy and electrical power and so on. The downside might be that this is a kind of power that may not be suitable for an adolescent uh, species like us. Uh, we're adolescent in the sense that we haven't been around that long. We still clearly have all kinds of things to work out before we can uh, live peacefully together. And in that kind of, of culture, it's like giving bombs to babies. Well, they'll play with it and they'll probably end up blowing themselves up at some point because they, they don't understand the power. And so that's kind of how we think where we are. The reason why I, I use the tools of science to try to understand it better is simply that the more we know about what we're dealing with, the better we'll be able to handle this particular bomb and hopefully not blow ourselves up. Well, you mentioned healing being one of the obvious positive uses for this sort of thing. And today we're at a very strange moment where the a certain scientific discourse is insisting that we solve this COVID-19 problem through one means primarily, and that is everybody gets vaccinated. Of course, there are other scientists who question whether this is a sound strategy. And frankly, based on what I've seen so far, I would tend to side with those uh, dissidents. But in any case, uh, it looks like there's now a war on these pluralistic conceptions of healing. You can't put up a YouTube uh, that discusses COVID or various other issues uh, in a way that's perhaps not precisely in line with the uh, WHO or CDC without risking having your YouTube channel taken down for so-called medical misinformation. And even social media is now relentlessly pr- patrolled for so-called medical misinformation. 
I can mm-hmm. imagine that anybody promoting any kind of alternative healing involving psychic abilities is really going to be uh, silenced uh, as a purveyor of so-called medical misinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe it, it seems that this slow progress towards accepting um, these uh, paranormal healing techniques as real, which I've seen in my own brother is a, is an MD PhD who's gotten a whole lot of grants. He's been basically surviving on grant money, studying things like this. And so mm-hmm. he, he knows this research and he knows that, for instance, prayer actually works uh, in, in healing. Double blind placebo controlled studies prove that. He knows that. And he's also a diehard materialist and he kind of just uh, sort of accepts it and shrugs his shoulders and, and so on. So there's been a lot of that kind of progress. But now with COVID and the demonization of what they're calling medical misinformation, how far back are we going to slip? Well, it's, it's a very good question. It's it, what we all want is someone who knows all of the answers. And of course, we don't have that thing at, at this point. So uh, we're we're kind of in a in a pickle. I think that's the technical term. Yes, we're in a pickle. Uh, a pickle is uh, sour and crunchy and appealing at the same time. Some people like the pickle. Um, I don't know that there's a, uh, any... I like pickles. <laughs> yeah. But, any... uh, just earlier today, I, I was really proofreading my wife's uh, spiritual cookbook. Uh, and one of the last headlines I read before I came out to this interview was uh, something like, everybody likes pickles. So, there, there you, you go. go. <laughs> See, so there is a certain degree of, of joy in uh, in debate. And, and what, what you're describing and what we're certainly seeing now in terms of the debate in Congress, even on social media, including YouTube, is is a pickle debate about who's going to who's going to be the spokesperson for a truth that we all have to follow. And it's a very complicated topic. Because there are multiple truths. We, in especially medical science, we don't always, in fact, rarely, except for fairly simple things at this point, do we understand what's going on. So I like to point out that in the domain of psychic research, uh, worldwide total funding might be maybe $5 million through nonprofits and grants and every, every other source. So $5 million as compared to probably $100 billion being spent on things, something like cancer research. Well, there have been some important strides made in cancer research, but most of it's still a pretty big mystery. So uh, the dollars turn into the number of people who are working in those fields. So if you have a field that has $5 million supporting people, you don't have very many, and progress is going to be pretty slow. If you have $100 billion or more, that may be an underestimate, you have thousands, tens of thousands of people who are devoting their efforts to try to understand a very difficult problem and pragmatically important. And if you look worldwide then at how much money is being spent on all kinds of interesting things in medicine, physics, and whatever, we're talking probably well over a trillion dollars a year, which is supporting millions of scientists, all of whom are striving hard to push the boundary of knowledge. And in the meantime, almost nothing being spent on understanding our, what we're actually capable of. Because I think you're right that at some point, what we currently think of as medicine is a combination of surgery and drugs. Uh, most of it, most of the money probably is in the drug business. At some point, I don't think we're going to need either of them. 
if we really understood how psychic phenomena work, I think the entire medical model will change. So having said that, now think of all of the money that's being made in the status quo in medicine and how hard it would push back on ever figuring out another way. So this this is just the same old problem that we see in the academic world, the pushback for people who made their careers based on a certain ideology. Well, here comes something along that says some of that ideology is probably wrong and there's going to be a lot of pushback. Indeed. But that's okay. I mean, you know, having worked in this field for a long time and watched and watching the sociology of science, anybody who gets involved in a controversial topic of any type has to expect that this is simply par for the course. So that's that's just do your work and publish it and keep going. Have you noticed that the politics of these topics have shifted in a very bizarre way um, fairly recently? Uh, it used to be that most of the people interested in, let's say, alternative healing and open to um, uh, psychic phenomena and talking about them and so on tended to be more from the political left. And then people on the right have tended to be a little more hidebound and, you know, often sort of uh, traditionally religious in a kind of obscurantist way. Today, though, we're seeing a kind of hysteria from people who think of themselves as being on the liberal or left side of the political spectrum who are really insisting on following a certain kind of authoritarian discourse with uh, the trust the science motto as the centerpiece. Uh, I, I just interviewed a sort of self-described uh, hardcore progressive uh, comedian who spent the entire hour screaming at me to get vaccinated uh, with you know enough four-letter words to sound like she was suffering from Tourette syndrome. <laughs> uh, so if that's the progressive left, which is what's you know shutting down all of the debate and all of the free discussion, um, and suddenly it's the conservative, obscurantist, you know, and to some extent Trump-loving right that is where the free speech and open inquiry is. Uh, we're living in a kind of a different world from the one that I remember from just a decade or two ago. Do you have any comments on that? Historically, the the governments that supported at least the secret research in psychic phenomena were mostly Republican. The problem is that Republicans today are not Republicans anymore, at least not historically, anything like what Republicans used to be. So we're, we're in some other crazy kind of condition now where the name Republican is being used, but this is, this is not what most people would have said was Republican even 10 years ago. So we're in a very strange place. As, as far as the, uh, the political left or right, I think a lot of the angst comes about from doing what's good for the, for the public, like releasing what you think is important for you and doing something for others. That's where a lot of the anger comes from. Uh, and I, I have to say that I agree with that. While uh, an mRNA vaccine may not be the best thing in the world, it does seem to work pretty well. Uh, and each of us then has to make a decision. Well, are we going to stop at the red light or not? Do I want my personal freedom to do literally anything I want without regard to anybody else? Well, I would say no. I say we, we live in a social society. We have to consider other people as well. Uh, and so for if people who don't want to get vaxxed, there's lots of reasons why people may hold that position. And that's perfectly fine, except then... Are they being socially responsible or not? 
Well, I, I would actually tend to agree with you if um, I thought, if I believed that the data was telling us what most people think it's telling them. However, I'm not at all convinced that these vaccines uh, slow transmission enough to make a serious difference. Um, and there's all sorts of evidence behind that. But we won't sit here and debate that because we only have five minutes left. Uh, yeah. If you're interested, I'd be happy to send you some sources. And if not, that's fine, too. And I thank you for being a lot more reasonable about the way you stated that than uh, my <laughs> interviewee, Mona, was the other night. Uh, so last, we're getting close to the end. And I'm really curious about how you got a blurb from John Cleese, the brilliant British comic uh, from Monty Python and Faulty mm -hmm. Towers and so on and so forth. Uh, he was sort of one of my favorite uh, entertainment figures Uh Actually, since I was a kid, since I was quite young, um, how did he end up blurbing your brand new book, Real Magic? Well, John, I met a couple times at uh, seminars at Esalen Institute. Uh, the seminars were about survival of consciousness and psychic phenomena. And John turns out to have a, a lifelong interest in consciousness and what it can do. So... I've actually found this among many creative people because creative people tend to be more open to these kinds of experiences and actually have them. Uh, so he's one of a, a batch of celebrities I've met uh, and business people as well who who are very, very interested in these kinds of topics. And while they're not, they're not scientists or necessarily scholars about it, uh, they're very well read. They're very interested in these issues like most people are. And they, because of their status, they have the capacity to go to conferences and private meetings and that sort of thing. And that's that's where I met John. And he says that if you're skeptical of psi phenomena, start with pages 95 and 96. Well, what what's on pages 95 and 96 that uh, but, John Cleese finds so mind-blowing? Or do we have to buy the book to find out? Well, see, I could be shamelessly self-promoting and say, well, you'll, you'll, have to, you'll have to buy the book to find <laughs> out. But, but what I'll say, though, is that the uh, core of the book is what does science have to say about the practices that we call magic? We only call them magic, things like precognition and psychokinetic stuff, because we don't have a better name for it yet. But these are ancient esoteric practices that have been studied in the laboratory under different names, and we find that they work. And so the core of the book is actually covering the science so that we can say with, with some confidence that uh, the, the main practices of magic, the different categories of what's called magic, have been studied in the laboratory and they work. So this is why the, the, the theme of, of my book, Real Magic, is all about, uh, we're talking here about very ancient esoteric traditions, that every culture has them. Uh, and up until... When I started writing the book, if somebody had asked me, uh, why are you writing a book about magic? I would say that I'm not writing a book about magic. I'm writing about how science has studied some esoteric practices. But as I kept writing and doing the background research, it became very clear to me that what we call magic, the kinds of magic, of course, not quite as embellished as we see in TV shows or movies, but that kind of magic actually has been examined in, in some detail and we have pretty high confidence that that stuff is real. Again, not as you see in the movies, but something like that actually does exist. 
And that slogan, trust the science, may or may not uh, pertain in the field that they're deploying it for, but I think it would be a good slogan for the science of the study of psi, because if you have even probably 30% of the trust in that branch of scientific inquiry that you have in any other branch, you're going to be totally convinced. Um, for some reason, there's a very strange and irrational mistrust of science in this field, <laughs> as you have demonstrated throughout your work. Well, we're just but, about... But only, yeah, but only by some. Mm -hmm. right? A lot of people do resonate with the science, especially when you describe what does it mean to trust the science, right? I mean, people, it's used as a slogan. It doesn't mean anything because if you don't know how to evaluate data, then, you know, the average person who's not a scientist will, will look through medical journals and they can pick and choose anything they want and maybe not even understand what they're looking at. Mm -hmm. So trust maybe isn't exactly the right word, but no. uh, we should look at all scientific data uh, as reasonably as possible and put it all on the same level. It's, it's the same playing field. We shouldn't just dismiss whole areas of inquiry because they conflict with our prejudices. And right. so rather than saying trust right. the science, we should maybe say don't miss, don't distrust the science too much. Like if I'm predisposed at this point to be skeptical about COVID vaccines, I should not just dismiss every study that seems to uh, tell me the opposite and then That's vice right. versa. Right. Yeah. And, and it's not easy, right? In order to really know what's going on with the uh, mRNA types of treatments, you need to know something about genetics and about how statistics are collected and what clinical trials are about, you know, the whole domain in order to actually understand what is being said mm -hmm. indeed okay well i think we've uh, we've hit the end of the hour so thank you so much uh, dean raden author of real magic ancient wisdom modern science and a guide to the secret power of the universe i've read uh, two of your other books and find them very very useful and this one looks great as well i'm very much looking forward to it thank you okay thank you i uh, look forward to another conversation down the line very good Bye-bye. All right. Bye.